Hey everyone, this is Josh, co-founder of Urban Valor. Welcome to another episode of the Urban Valor podcast. Today's guest is Marine veteran Prime Hall. Prime grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas on North Padre Island. He battled his way out of a troubled childhood, attended military school to refine his discipline, and unexpectedly developed street smarts. Prime overcame an extensive criminal history to earn a spot inside the Marine Corps and eventually earned his way into the Marine Special Operations Command. He shares his harrowing experiences in combat, including an Afghan inside attack and sheds light on the daunting challenges of transitioning back into civilian life. Prime is a co-founder of Deep End Fitness and the Underwater Torpedo League, which focuses to optimize human performance in and out of the water. If you enjoy this episode, go give us a five-star rating and leave a comment to help support our veterans. The bigger the community, the bigger the impact. If you'd like to contribute your story to Urban Valor or know anyone else who may, reach out on Instagram at Urban Valor TV, or you can email me at josh at urbanvalor.com. Enjoy the show. So my name is Prime Hall, and I was a United States Marine. I joined in 2005 and got out in 2017, and uh, I got out as a Staff Sergeant E6. So I grew up in South Texas in a place called, I was born in East Texas, but when I was young, I moved to uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. And so North Padre Island is also the the island that's on the section on the other side of Corpus. So I grew up in the water, in the ocean, going to the swimming pool. I spent a lot of time growing up with my grandparents um, that are passed away now, but my grandmother, Barbara especially, who was a synchronized swimmer growing up. And so she loved the pool and she had me at the pool since I was, you know, a little kid and doing swimsuit competitions and stuff like that growing up. And so uh, my grandmother was... Um, was always uh, fun to be around and she was also an alcoholic. And so she would get, you know, a little bit wild sometimes. And so, um, I spent a lot of time with her and I would, uh, you know, always be entertained because, uh, you know, you never knew what was going to happen at nighttime once, uh, you know, grandma had a couple bourbons. <laughs> <laughs> Do you recall any specific, uh, incidents that occurred after she's had a couple bourbons? Yeah. So, I remember one time that we were at a restaurant in Corpus and uh, my grandmother had too much to drink and my grandfather was telling her to stop and was telling her to be quiet, stop, stop, stop. And my grandmother started yelling for rolls for the, <laughs> for the waitress to bring more rolls and my grandfather was saying, stop, stop. And so my grandmother started going, rolls and throwing these rolls all over the restaurant. And uh, I mean, my grandfather, like, he had already had a stroke from from stress, and so it was always back and forth between the two of them. So um, that was uh, there was a lot of kind of uh, that. That's the fun moments I remember, and then I had a lot of uh, great friends growing up. As far as you know, people that I depended on, that you know, their parents were. Uh, my parents got divorced um, when I, after uh, after I was getting out of middle school in eighth grade. And so a lot of my uh, friends were like my family. Once my family, once my parents divorced and a lot of the situations that I was dealing with, I really leaned on my friends. And so um, my best friends uh, were brothers, John and Price, and they were all into uh, what was UFC back then. Um, whatever the precursor, tough man, mm. tough man competitions. So that we were all obsessed with tough man. We would watch those competitions. We would all grapple or fight in the grass and do all these different kind of like little warrior stuff that we would do back then that kind of, 
you know, was like, uh, you know, miniature army games kind of thing, right? Yeah. Or Marine games. So, um, that was definitely a big part of it. Um, I've, I've talked in detail on, on Sean Ryan and other, you know, uh, podcasts and stuff about my, uh, situation that I had a peeping Tom in my window. And so, um, real briefly had moved into a new house and the windows, uh, were covered with landscape and vegetation. So someone could easily hide in there inside those plants and not be seen by the people driving by. So I had this guy that would, that found himself in my window for years and would, and never got caught until my parents eventually caught him. So in those years that he was there before he got caught, it was, that was a, a huge kind of a part of my, part of my childhood where I had to deal with this guy that was in my window and living in my closet and being able to hide from him whenever, you know, the light contrast from outside to inside and all that stuff. And so my parents didn't believe me for years until they actually caught him. So I had to go through those years and deal with it myself. And that's kind of what um, gave me a lot of resilience. You know, obviously it was challenging and all that stuff. And I was feeling, uh, had a lot of uh, where you feel helpless, you know, in yeah. there. But on the other side of that, it was like, nah, like, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna beat this guy. Or I'm gonna, it's like, I remember thinking like home alone, you know, I remember mm. like defeating those burglars and stuff like that. I was like, nah, this guy's in my world now, you know, I'm gonna play these games with him. I'm gonna do all this stuff. And so, um, I kind of had those, those things that I look back at it now. I'm like, man, none of my friends had that peeping Tom situation or that stuff going on, but. I'm so grateful that that happened to me because man, like that set me up in these other situations that I ended up in, in life, you know, that I was able, when I was able at seven and 10 years old to deal with this on my own, mm. I've been able to deal with other situations. And it's like, man, I'm 39 now. Yeah. <laughs> and so how did he get caught? Um, there was a noise disturbance that my parents heard, uh, in the front of the house. And so, uh, they went and found him, uh, in the windows in the front side of the house, hiding in the vegetation. So my wow. dad ran out with his gun, chased this guy down. He had his car parked at the end of the, in the park at the end of our street. He had his car ready to roll. So he sprinted there, got in his car, took off. My dad chased him with a gun and they let me know, you know, the next morning or whatever that they caught him and that they, sh uh, trimmed all of the landscape on my window and put a security light right there, which I recommend anybody do. If you're a parent to have, make sure that there's not vegetation outside your children's windows, if they're access to the street and make sure that you have security lights up. Wow. So, and that was a game changer. Did so, the cops get them? No. Oh yeah. Wow. Um, what inspired you to join the military? I went to military boarding school. So I went to Marine Military Academy in Harlingen, Texas. And, uh, I was, uh, a lot of kids get sent to boarding school. They get sent to military school against their will for being in trouble. For me, it was a different situation because my grandparents offered to send me because they found out that I had been living by myself for a couple of years, um, after my parents got divorced. Mm -hmm. I was living on my own in Corpus Christi in an apartment and from, you know, so from end of eighth grade or eighth grade summer to ninth grade, 
sophomore year all by myself. And so they're like, man, they came one summer to take me on a vacation. They saw my living situation and they're like, how long has this been going on that you've been by yourself and all this stuff? And so they're like, this is not acceptable. So we're going to, you know, and then when we're on that vacation, we're in San Antonio and this is just like crazy how life works out. But there were a couple of kids from Texas Military Institute that walked by. And uh, funny enough, we have Deep in Fitness San Antonio that's at Texas Military Institute now. Oh, wow. But these kids walked by and I was like, man, I wish I could do something like that to my grandparents. Wow. And so they went back and they're like, well, we've got Marine Military Academy that's here in South Texas that we can send you to. So they took me on a tour and it was this, you know, huge campus. You're going to have a drill instructor. You're going to have all these people that are looking out for you that are doing all this stuff. And I'm coming from nothing, from no security, nobody looking out, no nothing, living on my own in an apartment. That's scary. Mm. So I was like, I'm in, I'm in, wow. I'm down. So I was voluntary going there, which is a different energy than everybody that's forced there. And so I loved military school from day one yeah. when I got there. What was it like? It's a um, Marine based. So you're going through a simulated Marine Corps experience. You're going through boot camp, but instead of three months, it's a month. Uh, you're doing a crucible at the end of boot camp, but instead of three days or whatever, it's like two days. Mm. You're doing certain things, but, and you're, you're getting, uh, brought in and indoctrinated into that culture and you're understanding how the Marine Corps works, but it's like you're, you, it, but it's also very authentic because the way that they run it is the students run the leadership of the whole thing. So the students that have been there for two, three, four years, those are the ones that are running each barracks. Mm. They're the CO, they're the XO, they're the, all, they have all those ranks, right? And they're filling it. So when you come in, the people that are disciplining you are the students that have been there for a couple of years. Wow. And so, you know, it's, it's a different, uh, type of, it's all what I call merit based where it's like, it's kind of prison rules because when you get in there, people are going to test you. And when they test you, you have to fight back. You have to defend yourself because if they see that you're weak and you're, you, you're going to let them do that, or you're going to react when they do that. Now they're going to be coming into your room at night. Now it's going to get worse and worse and worse or whatever the situation is. So that, that was a part of it too, is just understanding like, Hey, you know, when people try to test you, especially when it's in public or something, doesn't matter how big that person is or what the situation is, you got to just retaliate back as hard as you can and deal with the, everything else later. Mm. Did you get tested while you were there? Oh yeah. Everyone did. Wow. Every single person did. And so uh, you said similar to prison. So when you say testing, um, do you mean like somebody will physically try to fight you? All the, every day. Wow. Yeah. So you're not getting kicked out for fighting. You're not getting, you're all, everybody's forced there and it's bad kids from all over the world. Not just the United States. It's people from outside the United States. There's cartels. There's all types of kids that are there. And so, um, there's, when you're in that environment, it's a pack mentality and people are trying to test you whether they know it or not. So just because stress of everyone being in this place all together and it's just, whatever that is, it builds up and how it shows up is you'll be like, I remember marching to uh, the chow hall to the cafeteria, like while I was in boot camp in military school. And the guy behind me is a big, tall guy that's kicking the back of my shoes as we're marching. Right. 
and everybody in the back can see that he's kicking me. And it's like, so I'm reacting to it. But then once we stop in the formation, I tell him like, don't, you know, don't ever touch my, me again. And then he has a response to that. And I remember turning around and blasting him as many times in the face as possible at that, in that moment, just as many times as I could, I hit him in the face as many times. And then after that, the emotions broke out. So then everybody separated us and they're holding him. He's crying. He's all crazy and emotional because he just got and But that's what I needed to do. Now everybody else is like, nah, I'm not messing with that guy because he'll punch me in the face. He doesn't care, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and so those are the types of things. But I never really got messed with after that. That was the first in the first couple weeks. But then in the, in the barracks, like, <laughs> you guys, it's kill or be killed in the barracks. Really? Yeah. So if you, I mean... Uh, that all of that was, uh, what it was a real experience. And it was like, this is real life. This isn't fake. Wow. So this, this ain't no, this isn't like, <laughs> like joining the junior Marines. Nah. This is like, like you're, you're learning to deal with it. Oh yeah. yeah. Wow. It's real shit. Yeah. Wow. So I imagine, um, this military school, it, it inspired you to, to choose the Marine Corps when you joined the military. Yeah, it did. And I was thinking that, there was, uh, we all had drill instructors in each barracks. So my drill instructor for Sergeant Thomas, he was a boxing coach in the Marine Corps. He was a drill instructor in the Marine Corps. He, he, you know, was an amazing mentor to me, but there were also other drill instructors that were war veterans that had a lot of, uh, a lot of combat and they had all the, you know, the, uh, they had all of the ribbons and the medals and all that stuff. And they were the quietest ones. And that was always a thing for all of us. We're like, man, Master Guns, Hager, you know, these guys, like, don't, you don't mess with that guy, <laughs> you know. And we would have these leadership classes where it's a force recon lieutenant colonel that's given us leadership classes that's showing us all this force recon stuff all the time. And so that was always a thing in my head, like, man, I want to do that. Like, I like this force recon thing. I mm. like that, yeah. you know? And so, uh, at, that was, uh, that was a big, uh, and it's plug and play. Like the Marine Corps, um, doesn't probably doesn't know this, but you go to Marine military Academy, you don't uh, like when I went to Marine Corps boot camp. Yeah. You're t teaching me customs and courtesies and certain things, but all the marching, all the drilling, all the yelling, all that other bullshit. I already know all that stuff complete. Like, you know, none of that stuff is anything new or do You're I care about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my recruiting experience was pretty crazy because uh, I had a lot of uh, criminal charges. Really? So when I went to the recruiter, I mean, I've been working in South Padre Island, you know, was basically a criminal, you know, doing all this crazy shit with on the border in San Antonio, in the drug game, doing these different mm -hmm. things, getting robbed, robbing people, you know, working at Spring Break, South Padre, since I was 18 years old with the wrong crowd doing things. So it got to a point to where I had no purpose and I was just getting into trouble nonstop and I didn't know what I was doing in life. And I remember I talked to my grandfather one day I'd stayed up all night. I was sitting outside of my front porch. My grandfather was getting out ready for work and he lived next door. 
he came out and I was told him like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I don't know where I'm going or anything. And he was like, well, remember whenever you were at military school, how, how, how well you did and how much you liked that? What if we got you into the Marines? And I was like, I don't think that's possible. I got so much legal shit, you know? He's like, well, let's just go to the recruiter, right? Let's, let's go to the recruiter this afternoon. We'll go. So I went to the recruiter, did, you know, the practice ASVAB and all that stuff. And it all feels like, oh, you're good. You know, you're going to, you're going to be great. You know, you went to military school, everything's going to be good. And then all the way up until I went to San Antonio to MEPS to the military entrance processing, whatever, um, Mm -hmm. that they ran my background check and my fingerprints and everything. And then that's when it's like, oh, no, this guy's got all these charges. And so he can't be a Marine. And so when I went back home, the recruiter said, hey, we're sorry, but there's no way that we can get you in. You wow. Know? And, uh, and so it was like, uh, you know, probably a little disheartening at the time, but it probably wasn't a month or two that went by till one of the recruiters called, said, hey. It's a long shot, but if you're willing to work through the paperwork process, we think there's a chance that we can get you in, you know, so we're going to waiver you in and we're going to go through each charge and have you write up a witness statement and all that stuff about it. And then we're going to need to get recommendations. We're going to need to all, it's going to be a process, but if you're willing to work it, we can get, we think we have a chance. So that's what it was. Wow. So you were getting in this, into all this trouble after the military school? Yes. Well, the, so full transparency, the military school was kind of like, I'm around criminals. Oh, oh, so, that's right. Cause yeah. people are there because yeah. they're in trouble. They're in trouble. Yeah. It's not, oh yeah. yeah, that makes sense then. Yeah. That makes sense. And so, uh, I was like, I had a tendency to, to, to kind of thrive in that environment at that point. And so, um, I mean, my first year when I was at military school, I got put on staff carpet, right? When I was a private, I had no rank. And there's only the highest ranking people on staff carpet. It's only six rooms in the building that have th- that, right? But I was put in that because I sold all the tobacco in the school. <laughs> and so I had different, you know, I have different like kind of power because that's, you yeah, know, because of that. And so they're like, you're a staff carpet, you know? And so being on that, it's like, okay, well, it's, this is how this works, right? And wow. The, and so... Um, it literally is like prison. Yes. And so, uh, but from that experience, I think that uh, just living, you know, I I've, I've went from there to... And when I was in military school, I had... We would do crazy stuff too. So we would sneak out. We would go to Mexico across, you know, in the middle of the what? night, go party all the time. And we would, we only got caught once. We'd do this all the time. We We... We would have our vehicles parked in the airport that's right there. We'd sneak out. We'd go to the South Padre Island. We'd go to Mexico. We'd go live it up because these kids were politically connected. So even if we got caught and we got put in cuffs, these kids would make a call and we would be out and back going, driving back to military school within 30 minutes. Wow. Where they're apologizing for cuffing us. Wow. (laughs) And so it was like, and we, it was a crazy experience. We would go. My best friend that I'm still connected with in Monterrey, Mexico, Farid, we would go down to Monterrey for the, the holidays. And these kids are billionaire families. So we're in bulletproof cars with security guards. 
that are taking us throughout Mexico, you know, through Monterrey, through wherever we're at in, in this, because it's the, they're at risk of kidnapping, being kidnapped, these kids that we're with. Mm. So we're living, we're going and living this crazy life on the, on the holidays and stuff as wow. well. And then coming back to military school. And, uh, so it was a crazy, crazy experience. So you guys really had a lot of freedom to do like, when you say like you guys would run the show, like you really mean that, like, was there any leadership that ran like outside the, you know, people you're going to military school with that ever stepped in to monitor anything? Yes. There's a drill instructor in each barracks. Mm. And so the drill instructor is like, you know, the overwatch for everything. And he's like the mentor. So if you're getting in trouble, he's going to like bring you in, counsel you and mentor you and doing all that stuff. And he's really great at that. But at a certain point, like after hours, once the drill instructor goes to sleep and all it is is just roving security that's driving around the perimeter of campus, right? And that, that this guy's going, right? And as soon as he passes this way, we know he still has to drive around this loop. So once he passes it, we're out the... <laughs> <laughs> so the day I was supposed to leave to boot camp, after, you know, two years or of whatever of paperwork and, you know, getting wavered in. And then now I'm finally leaving to boot camp where a lot of my family didn't think it was going to happen to where, you know, you have like a going away dinner. Now I'm leaving. Bye. See you after boot camp. And I go up to San Antonio, the club that was across from the MEPS hotel in San Antonio. We went to that club with whatever money that we had left because we're all going to boot camp. So we're like, we're just going to party and have fun. So we're in there up until the point where one of the guys that we were with went down, went to the bathroom and didn't come back. And so I went back to check on him and all these bouncers had taken this guy out the back and were destroying him on the ground in the back. So. And the whole time it was, it was red flags because there were everybody, all the bouncers and all the males that are in there. It's a huge club. They're like, are you guys Hurricane Katrina vic victims or refugees or something? They're asking us these weird things. And it's like, kind of like, this is a trap, you know? Yeah. So we found out later on that these guys beat up all the recruits that come there before they leave for boot camp. It's like a regular thing that these oh. guys do. <laughs> so we were, we were in the fly trap. We didn't know it. And, wow. uh, and so I saw this kid when I went back to check, the door was open and there's a group, you know, of 15 plus on this one kid and he's getting stomped. And so, um, we had three other buddies that are still in the club. So I was there by myself and I saw it and I got down, was able to get on him, onto him and then get him to get up. And then he got to run away and then I'm there. And I'm like, no trouble, no trouble. And then like about to run and these guys get me. Oh. So I was on the ground and, you know, like getting, they're trying to kick you in the face and the ribs and all this different stuff. And so uh, that's kind of uh, how it started. And then they would let me get up and we'd go back and forth and we'd have these exchanges and stuff. And then eventually someone smashed my head with a bottle and the blood was like, I had an open head one where the blood was dripping so bad that it was like running. Mm. So it just felt like my head was numb, but it was a huge gash and blood was just, so I was like th <laughs> throwing this wow. going off. And, uh, at the end, but my adrenaline was, was up. So at that point, but after that altercation was over, 
the guys that were inside, they're all behind the, the wall, the building over here waiting. So I went and linked up with them and they're like, you know, I was missing a shoe. I had a head wound, all this stuff. So these guys helped me kind of, uh, get my clothes, like, cause I, my clothes were covered in blood. They helped me get new clothes. Cause we're leaving for MEPS in like four hours. And so I got new clothes, I got shoes, I got everything, you know, cause these guys didn't help when I was on the, when I was getting fucked up. So they were trying to help me afterwards, Damn. you know? And, uh, and so, but, so I went to MEPS, right. And I was, had clean shoes, clean clothes, all this stuff, but they can't stop. I need stitches and there's no way for me to stop this blood that's just running down. So I'm like trying to hide it and conceal it. But they're like, there's no way we can't send you to boot camp with a, with, with a open head wound that needs stitches like now, you know, there's yeah. no way. So you're going back home. Right. Ugh. So I had to do the walk of shame and go home. Right. After for like, spending two years of wavering yes, in. Yeah. So I went back, back home and that was, a, that was really embarrassing. Thank God that it was the recruiters and everybody knew that I helped that one guy and that he got his orbital crushed in and he got really messed up like within that minute that he was down and I was able to help him. So he got saved and he got rescued. So the, and I didn't really, I mean, I'd had that, but I didn't, other than that, I just had a bunch of bruises. So, uh, I had to go home and they they didn't make it any negative thing for me. It was all positive. They just wanted me to heal and get, and mm. I was good to go. So I went back like a month later and went into boot camp. That's the biggest thing I remember, you know, and then just in boot camp, I didn't know if it was, I, if it was real or not. Cause it took so long for me to get in that I felt like it was still, they still might decide that, uh, he has too much criminal record or, you know, he's not a whatever. I didn't know that it, pretty much until I graduated boot camp. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't believe it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so once you graduate boot camp, um, what, what job did you sign up for? I signed up for artillery because that's what they made me sign up for. Because you got to take whatever you can get if you're a two-year waiver. Mm. You basically take whatever they're willing to give you. Um, so not knowing, I don't have uh, Marine like family members or people that mentored me or that I knew or had any reference point for what job I wanted besides military school. So when I got in, I was supposed to be artillery. And then once I was in boot camp, I was like, man, all my friends are infantry here. So I don't want to be artillery. Like the guys that are artillery, they're not my friends. All the guys that are infantry, these are my guys. So I need to get into 0311. It's, you know, so everybody said that when you get to infantry school, Infantry school is at Camp Pendleton for West Coast. And so there's Marine Combat Training and School of Infantry. And so after boot camp, you go on leave for 10 days, you show up here and there's two lines. And so I was thought that I had done my paperwork at the end of boot camp to be in this line, infantry school. I went all the way through and they said, no, we don't have you. You're in that line. So then I went into this, I go in and I start Marine combat training. And on the first day they have one of the, you know, whatever it is from infantry battalion or infantry school. That's, that's a leadership uh, master guns or gunnery sergeant. That's like, Hey guys, anybody here that wants to be infantry, you got an open ticket. Just let us know and we'll get you processed into infantry school. So I raised, you know, did all that. I want to go 
blah, blah, blah. Okay, we got you. Blah, blah, blah. And then I'm continuing with training. And each day, it's, it's the next training day up until getting close to graduation. And so at the end, because I'm still not in infantry, I'm still, I'm about to graduate and go to be artillery. That what I did was sit on my bed in the Marine Corps, the rack, and just say, I don't know what else to do. I refuse to train. I refuse to train. I'm not moving until you hear me out and put me in infantry school. So they said, are you sure that you, you sure you refuse to train? Yes, I'm sure. Okay. Then they go and figured it out. And then, all right, turn in all your gear. You're going to infantry. Yay. <laughs> oh, 311. <laughs> Checking in. It was, everybody's just got back from Iraq twice. What unit did you check into? 2-1. Okay. Second battalion, first Marines. And, uh, everybody had came back before that was Fallujah. And then this time they had just came back from like Operation Steel Curtain and all this crazy stuff in Iraq. So uh, they were all combat veterans and everybody's like, you know, uh, it's a proving ground because they've all been through something that you haven't been through and they're holding in, they're holding that, you know, and that's that's uh that's what it is. And uh, it felt like, oh, well, I'm not going to really get to test myself or measure up until. I go to Iraq like these guys did, and then I can test, then I can be worthy and show them and whatever else. But until I go to combat, then how can I prove that? Right. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of a problem is that, well, but also it's like a theater arts. There's a lot of uh, fake parts to it to where it's like, well, hey, like if you really have a problem with me, take your rank off because I don't have any rank anyway, and we could just deal with this right here. Right. But Nah, they don't want to do that a lot of times. And so when I found those situations, it'd be like, well, what is this? And this isn't like military school. This is like a, this is like a theater arts show. This isn't, this is a bureaucracy. This isn't a real like warrior thing because you got these guys that are fake warriors that are in charge of the real guys, right? Like law of the jungle. You know what I'm saying? If a grenade goes off when there's all this fake ranking leadership and everything, those guys are going to be holding on to our leg, begging us to us to tell them what to do next. Their rank and all that bullshit doesn't matter. It's all fake chirp, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things I was like having issues with my first couple of years in the, in the Marines and really like, uh, revolting or, you know, having like authority issues with stuff in the Marine Corps based off of why is this guy in charge of anybody? You know, or why is this, why does this guy have rank, you know, in yeah. that? So the biggest things that happened, like I got, uh, when I got to my unit the first day or the second day, there was the end of the week and they had a couple slots for sniper platoon to try out. And so they're like all these guys that just got back from Iraq, they're all tight and they're all part of the platoon. They don't want to leave. They don't, they don't care about snipers. They don't want to go to that. So they sent the new guys that met the criteria on paper. So me, another guy, we went to snipers. And so I checked in on Thursday or whatever. And then on Monday, I'm starting sniper tryout in dock, you know, for months. And I, without ever, I didn't want to be a sniper. I didn't want to, you know, but I just got put into this training. And like, once I got in there, I was like, well, shit, I'm just not going to quit. You know, I'm, I'm going to figure out how not to quit. I don't want to be a sniper. Like I didn't want to be a sniper. I didn't want to, uh, 
I didn't have that set out when I joined the Marine Corps or anything like that, but I got put in that my first week in the fleet. And it was a great opportunity to figure out like how to test, how to, when you're tested like that, how to keep pushing, even when your body's done, you know, you're climbing, you're running up these hills in Pendleton, you know, you're, you, you can sprint up that hill for like 20 seconds and then you're going to start questioning yourself. You got to still run the rest of the hill. Right. So that mental piece of like my body's done and I've been doing this all week and I can't even move, but I have to run the hill. You could still run the hill. You got to just find a way to run. And so having those things and, um, the, the Marine Corps, the, the hazing part, uh, that the Marine Corps, um, it's, it's like a double-edged sword because in a lot of ways, hazing is a leadership, uh, tool that is used to develop Marines, right? Where it's like, Hey, you got issues, man. Like, let's just go out and run the hill, right? Instead of me giving you paperwork, let's just go run the hill mm-hmm. and then we'll figure it out and then we're done, right? Um, or let me have you do X amount of push-ups and run the hill and do this and do this. And then it builds character for that person and it makes them stronger and it makes them more resilient, it makes them better. Now, the hazing part can go overboard where you're in snipers, you live there and they never leave you alone. They have you running the hill all day and then they have you bear crawling all night and they have you finding a pole and doing push-ups all night. And then it starts again the next day. It's just over and over and over. So that was kind of, uh, that was what I remember getting in. And then, you know, my first four years was really about, uh, understanding because most, most of that time I was a private for, for at least three years of having no rank and, being busted down all the way twice um, and going through restriction and being on restriction for, you know, a year. I did a uh, 31st Mew was my first deployment. So when I went out there, I was on restriction and I was on there for a year. So I've been on restriction for like almost a year and a half by the time I returned home. So you didn't get to hit, go out on no ports, liberal ports or nothing? No. Wow. Yeah. And I got uh, like more than halfway through deployment, I got released off restriction, right? For like for right when I got released and we were on Okinawa and uh, I had another alcohol related incident where I flipped out on a staff sergeant. And so lost all my rank again, you know, and uh, from, from that instance, I woke up and the next day and I didn't remember any of it. And everybody's like, man, I can't, why'd you do that? And da, 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 da. I don't remember any of it. So it's like I was getting in. Now I'm in trouble for a whole nother. I'd already been on restriction for a year and a half. Now I'm in trouble again. And I don't remember what happened. And it was like, mm. I'm done drinking. Like I'm going on my own program. I'm not drinking anymore. And all these guys that I drink with are not my real friends anyway. Because none of them, they were there when I flipped out on the staff sergeant. Which one of them held me back? Which one of them at, tried to stop that? you know, Mm. all that stuff. So I'm going to go on my own and I'm going to do my own program now that doesn't involve drinking. And so I made that decision that next morning. And from there I went 10 years without alcohol. Wow. And, uh, that was the biggest thing of, of like the breakthrough point in my first four years was making that decision to stop drinking. And that's what unlocked you know, that's when I started training seriously. That's the only re- way that I got into Raiders was because I was sober. Because mm. if not, I would have torn it. I would have burned it to the ground. So all your incidents where you, you got in trouble, they were all alcohol related? Yes. Mm. Yeah. 
So you were having a problem with alcohol in the Marines. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So in the Marines during the daytime, I can be there and do all this stuff and let people yell at me and, and, and let we, these weak leadership people be in charge and all that stuff. But once I have a couple drinks and those people are around. Everything that you're holding inside of you comes out. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So did you, um, eventually, did you go to sniper school? No. Okay. So no. I understand when you become part of a sniper platoon, you, you, there's two like categories, right? Like a pig and a hog. Yes. I was in snipers for maybe less than five, six months in that first thing. Cause I had a, I had behavioral things that were going on and, uh, I had an issue with my, uh, commander at the time that my, my stepmom died in a car accident and I had a red cross thing. And, uh, my commander played like I was going to get to go home to the funeral and then shut it down at the last second, played this whole hazing mind game with me. It made me go back to training when I'm supposed to be flying out to a funeral. And from there, that flipped a switch where I was like, okay, you know, I don't want to be part of any part of this. I'm, I'm against everybody that's here now, you know? Yeah. That's, so, a, that's a big deal. It was a big deal. That's not a game to be playing with, man. This is no. a family member that passed away. Yeah. So part of me died in that situation when he pulled that thing on me. Cause I'm already a private, like there's nothing I can, I don't have any leverage to do anything. And at the time my whole unit was gone in Hawaii doing uh, an exercise. So it was only the sniper platoon that was back on Pendleton anyway. Mm. And so he's back there, you know, doing whatever, playing God, doing whatever he wanted. And so when that happened, I just internalized it, you know, I got pissed and then I started to act out on the weekends and everywhere else because mm. I was really ups I was <laughs> I was deeply upset that they played me and tried to act like I was going home to my stepmom's funeral and then said oh no nah, we need you for training we're not going to be able to let we can't let you go you know so did you get to go to the funeral no. or no no wow I had to go change back into my uniform and go out on a stock that day for yeah that's wild. Yeah, it's horrifying. Nobody stepped in. No other leadership no. stepped in and was like, what, no. what, what are you doing? No. Like, no. And that's wow. a great point. So looking back, it's like, hey, man, you're a jellyfish leader. Like, And anybody around that lets that stuff happen, active duty right now, yeah, you, you're, you are a jellyfish. You know, you're a weak leader. And if you see something that's wrong and you know that it's wrong inside, you need to do something about it and stand up, even if it's uncomfortable. Um, because there's second and third order effects to every, every decision, right? There's a lot of Marines, like even since I started talking about any of this that have reached out to me and said, man, thank you so much for talking about your stepmom and the Red Cross message. Cause that happened to me too. You know, lots of people hit me up about the Red Cross thing. It was like, you know, so that right there was from that whole experience, like, you know, the, the commander ended up getting relieved for all the other stuff he was doing. So all that played out. And then when he, as he got relieved, I went back to my infantry unit that I started with the first couple of days. 2-1? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Still in 2-1. I went back to Echo Company to, to the infantry platoon and, you know, went back to being a machine gunner, saw gunner, um, small unit, you know, infantry tactics, uh, for my first deployment and second deployment to Iraq. Um, and, uh, 
kind of look at it, look at it like a, a, you know, building block approach because everybody, when we got there, it was like, man, we're going to Iraq. We're going to Iraq. We're going back to Iraq. We're training for Iraq the whole time. And then we go on the 31st Mew to Okinawa for a year. <laughs> it's like, well, none of us get to prove ourselves for another year. So now we're all unworthy because we haven't been tested. We haven't been to combat. We've got to train for a year. Now we got to go back to Pendleton and then hope that we go to combat the next tour. The next tour we go back, we go to Iraq. It's when we're closing out Iraq, turning everything back to the Iraqis. People are still getting killed. We're getting shot at and we're not allowed to return fire. And the rules of engagement are all, t- all weird. And it's like, well, when you get shot at, you got to go get the Iraqi police and then get them to react to the situation. And so the whole thing was just like, this is horrifying, man. This, this whole thing doesn't work. And everything that I, about that Iraq deployment was like, get me far away from this as possible. I want to go to a, and I was going to selection right when I got back from Iraq. Before I went to the Iraq deployment, I was uh, putting in a package for recon mm. to do the recon lap move to go be a reconnaissance Marine. And at that time, they were starting up MARSOC Marine Raiders at the same time. So when I started, when I came in, it didn't exist, modern day. So after my first deployment, we heard a little, hey, there's going to be MARSOC recruiters when we get back to Pendleton, if anybody's interested, blah, blah, blah. So um, my commander, my company commander for infantry, he was like, hey, I see that you want to go recon. I have a former college buddy of mine that's a Marine officer that's in Raiders that's loves it there. And I think that would be the fit for you to go do that. Right. And so if you're good with it, I'm going to change your paperwork from recon and get you started with this. And so I was good with it. I started my MARSOC package. We had MARSOC recruiters that had a trailer right there at Camp Horno on Camp Pendleton. I remember going over to the trailers, getting my recruiter, you know, all that stuff. And then getting all my, making sure that I had all my, uh, Paperwork was good so that I got a selection seat. So I got my selection seat before I even was able to re-enlist. So I knew that whenever I came back from Iraq, if I didn't get in trouble, no paperwork, I'm good to go to selection. I love selection for uh, the fact that the whole Marine Corps experience up till then was like, I'm going to tell you, you know, you need to take your, I'm going to tell you your instructions and you need to, there's always someone that needs to tell you what to do. And there's always a lot of extra talk. And for me, selection, it's no talking. Nobody needs to say shit. It's all performance. And take all of your instructions from the whiteboard up there. We don't need any extra shit. There's no talking back and forth with each other. And so for me, I'm an introvert. So I can play it. I love that part where it's like, wow. And these other guys aren't allowed to talk. Because that was another thing that I saw, especially like in those situations where guys that were talking the most, they'd be the ones that would get dropped the fastest, you know, and they're not there. And it's like, guys, there's no, you don't need to like, you don't need to sell me or talk, tell me anything on why you deserve to be here. You just need to do show up and perform. And so that was what I love that part of it, where it's like, ah, the talkers (laughs) are going to get weeded out quick here. And and uh, but also that it's big boy rules. You got to follow your instructions from the whiteboard. And if you don't, you're out. 
And every day there's less people here. There's less, all their gear's gone. They're not, all the racks are empty. Every day there's more empty racks. There's less people. They're not following. All the talkers are gone. It's, it's all the quiet ones that are left at mm. the end. And it's like, oh, I love that. What was the most um, challenging part of selection for you? And how did you overcome that? All of the, all of the team exercises are really challenging in like what you're, what you're having to carry, how you're having to carry it, the weight that you're carrying, all that different stuff. It's like, looking back, that's the most stressful thing. And how you, how you deal with it is working in a team and teamwork and leaning on each other and relying on each other. You cannot do it on your own. And so like really like that's where that camaraderie and that gung ho work together. It's just like a small boat team. If everybody, if we're all holding the boat, everybody's going to feel it if I pretend like I'm holding it and I'm not really. So that's where it comes into you knowing who you you having that trust with everybody, knowing that they're not going to do that and you working together to get this impossible task done. And that's the, that's the magic and the beauty of that environment and the culture that's there is once you start finding those guys that you can rely on and you can trust and you can do these impossible things with, that's why you went there in the first place. So that's the best part because you're not going to unlock and get access to those guys unless you go through the tryout, right? You're not going to get to play with NFL athletes unless you go through the tryout and you go through the combine and you get put out, right? You have to go through this process to weed everybody out, all the talkers, to get to the doers. Mm. So once selection, then, uh, you know, that's when I got to go back and work as a water survival instructor at the Camp Horno pool on Camp Pendleton with Don Tran. And that's where we started doing a lot of the deep and fitness training that we do. Um, so looking back, that was a very strategic time. And right after selection, Don and I both were intending on going to that next ITC class, the individual training course to become a Raider the 10 month course. And so we were only supposed to be at the pool for like a month or two, but it ended up getting that the monitor didn't get us in that one. He got us in the next one. So now we had a year to train at the pool with each other. And, uh, we had our other buddy, Andrew Campamore. So Don camp and I all trained for a year, worked at the pool, got all these reps training with each other and training thousands of Marines. And so we didn't know how valuable that would be for us until we got out to North Carolina. But all three of us made it through the whole training course, you know. And yeah. so uh, really having that, that those buddies, that buddy system and that tripod or the, you know, those, those buddies that you can rely on, I never would have made it through training. But And you're talking about the ITC course? Yeah. Wow. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Cause you, you, there are certain points if you're, um, sleep deprivation, I'll just give an example. You know, you can only go so many days without sleep until you start to hallucinate and you start to lose your, your mind, you lose your mind. Right. And so at certain points you need a buddy to say, Hey, he just lost his mind. Like I need to just look out for him because it's, it's going to pass. He's going to come back. Right but I got to help him just get through this. Cause I, I know that it's going to happen to me. And like, it's, it's like, it, it's, it's part of it. So, and also just having those 
those buddy, that buddy system and like, Hey, as we're running off the bus, your fin fell off your, your pack. Here's your fin, man. Cause if you ended up with one fin, they're going to make a huge example of you. It's going to be this huge deal. And then you might end up getting dropped or whatever the situation. So always having that person that's looking out, you know, that's, that's helping you out is huge. Uh, when we graduated from training, um, it was, uh, it was a big deal because everybody was saying all the leadership when we graduated in North Carolina was saying for everybody that's going out to the West coast to first Raider to first MSOB at the time, it became first Raider battalion, but Marine special operations battalion was the name. And so when you get to first, do not buy a house, do not get an apartment. Do not get situated because we need everybody to be ready to be combat replacements immediately in Afghanistan. And so that was like, that was a huge, that was a huge wake, you know, a huge thing in that I'm going out, but it's also like, this is what I've been training for. Now I'm just going, going straight from that into doing my job. Mm. So, uh, I remember breaking up with my girlfriend at the time that wanted to get married. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, that was my, that I grew up with that I thought was, I was going to end up marrying. And she was like, you know, when you get back from training, we're buying a house, we're doing all this stuff. And I was like, that's all the exact opposite that I'm being told that I need to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm not doing any of that. I'm going and I'm, I'm being ready to be a combat replacement. So this isn't going to work out. So separate come to first single ready to go to Afghanistan and got put right into my first team. So we all went to the training cell and then we got pulled into teams. And so I got pulled into my first team and I'm like a new guy, you know, white belt mentality, growth mindset, where it's like all these guys around me are legends. They've all got all the Afghan deployments, all the stuff. They have all of the experience and the leadership and they also have the skills so they all, they all have different roles that they play on the team, like the JTAC that's been to JTAC course that has a, a deployment or two controlling aircraft. That's a very special thing. You know, these other cute, like the intelligence guys, the this, the that, all these guys that it's like, man, these guys are important roles on the team. I don't have any schools. <laughs> I need a role. You know, I need a role like now. So I went to my commander uh, or my team commander Derek Herrera is still one of my closest friends to this day. And I was like, I just feel like there's so much experience here. I'm one of the only new guys. I need like something. I need a job. You know, he's like, well, I'm going to put you as the assistant armor and see how you do in there. Right. Mm-hmm. And just own that. Make it like your whole thing. And so I got into being in the armory and doing running my team's weapons and all of our gear. And I did a good job. And then they made me the primary armor. And then they put me in charge of the property book and all of the serialized equipment for our whole team. And then ended up sending me early to Afghanistan to go sign for all the equipment. And so I got, I went out early in front of my team as a new guy to go sign for all the equipment. And one of my, one of my lower jobs, I was supposed to be one of the Afghan local police mentors to train them. Right. Mm. But because I got there, a week and a half or however long I was there before everybody came that I had already started turning over all those relationships with all the Afghan commanders and stuff where they trusted me. And we had like any kind of relationship that was passed over. 
So by the time that my commander and my team got there, my commander saw that I was already working with the Afghan locals and that he's like, you're the primary on that, right? Mm-hmm. So that was the main thing operationally that I did in Afghanistan was run the Afghan local police and work, you know, in whatever roles that I did on my team. But my personal thing was the Afghan local police, which was anytime like, you know, anywhere from 50 to 70 Afghans, you know, it's a lot of training trainings going on where I'm training these guys and then they're, they're in war like every day. You wow. Know? So we lived in an enemy village and in Helmand and we got dropped in in March April time frame. So that's like right when the fighting season starts. And so from then till winter time, it was pretty much every day we were under attack. You know, we lived in an enemy village. So everything around us was enemy compounds. At the same time, you know, you're coming from, or I was coming from living in an apartment in Southern California to being in Afghanistan and it's 110 degrees. And so you're adapting to all this stuff. The first day, the first week, the first couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden you're like, this is home now, you know, after three or four weeks or whatever it is, you're like, this is it. You know, I'm adapted now. Like I'm not, I'm not a guy that needs to be in my air conditioned apartment in California anymore. I'm a guy that, you know, lives in a bunker with no air conditioning and 130 degrees that runs a militia force that does you know works with all this different stuff and this is my life you know Mm. and uh these guys i depend on my afghans like i depend on my like they're keeping me alive because my relationships with them is what keeps them from letting someone uh blow me up with a with a suicide vest so all my relationships with them were respectful and i'm doing as much as i can for them i'm getting them weapons food paychecks, vehicles, whatever I can. And they know that I am, they know that I care about them. And that was, that was a difference that I had. And, uh, I think I look at Afghan cause I grew up on the Mexican border in Texas and every, uh, every Christmas, since I was a little kid, my grandparents would take us to the Mexican neighborhoods across the border to the worst neighborhoods that we could find, uh, in Matamoros on the border of Texas. And we would go to the hood and we would deliver food, groceries, uh, clothes, toys, bicycles for kids, all these things. Every Christmas, we would be like the Santa Claus, right? And that was one of the coolest memories I had growing up and I always remember. And we weren't allowed to do it once the security situation got so bad in Mexico. So we had to stop, I think, uh, around like 2005-ish was when, when it stopped. Mm. But that was always a huge thing. So whenever I went over there, I would love to, any Afghans that I worked with, I kind of like had that same where I wanted to give them something positive any any time that I, that I worked with them, especially the kids or anything. So it's a completely different culture and there's so many things that are just different, yeah. you know, about all of our beliefs and our upbringings, but we found a way to make it work and that was one of the coolest things. Uh, Biggest takeaways I have from Afghanistan was just seeing the medics that we had work miracles um, over and over and over again um, and just save people's lives. And, uh, you know, I look at lifeguarding in the pools and the trainings that we do with Deep and Fitness and UTL lifeguarding. I've been a lifeguard for 15 years. And those guys, those medics, the Sarks, the corpsmen, the PJs, the controllers, everybody that's part of that lifeguarding 
life-saving process. That was the biggest things that I ever saw. Miracles worked every time where someone's dying, they're bleeding out, they have this thing and they save their life. Really? You know, they come in in the worst situation. They land, you know, under fire, under RPG, under whatever they land. They could jump out. They come do whatever they can to get those casualties back and then save their life and risk their life in the process to get them saved. Two of my closest friends were shot uh, on June 14th, 2012. And so one of them was shot uh, in the spine back here and immediately paralyzed from the chest down. The other one was shot through and through the neck. And we didn't believe that he was going to survive that. And so the medics were able to close up his neck and seal it up to where he came back within 10 seconds. Wow. You know, and was blinking at us and was like, he, he came back. Um, that's one of my best friends. So wow. uh, seeing those, seeing those, those are miracles in my eyes. Yeah. Every time I see those two <laughs> homies brothers i'm like it's it's it is a miracle to be around them and uh and they're special people uh obviously but um the uh the medics are really uh just like the unsung heroes from that whole from that whole thing and and even besides the uh the team and the and the american casualties and everything the 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 afghan casualties that would happen sometimes every day you know, we would, we would advise them as best as we could not to use this road, not to do this, not to do this, but they only listen to us until they don't. And then they would hit the road, they'd get blown up, five people die, you know, those things. And, uh, a lot of times with the Afghans, you know, one part with the medic medics is, uh, one of the best memories or wins that we had over there was we had a mass casualty situation where, one of my uh, Afghan checkpoints, the headquarters checkpoint, uh, was hit with a IED, with a motorcycle IED. So basically they waited till there was the most people in the area and they had a kid drive a motorcycle up and park it in the middle of everybody and walk away. And they waited till everybody was there and they detonated it. And so it was the worst, uh, like casualty situation that we had. It was a mass casualty where we had so many that were dead on arrival, but we had nine that were living. So when they brought the casualties, we, we saved our medics saved those nine patients of all different ages. There was a baby. There was all different ages in that group old to old men. They saved all of them, got them all lifted out, got them all to the hospital, saved their lives. You know? Wow. Uh, so all of that during that year, um, before and after that was the, that was the peak of the insider attacks. Mm. So, uh, there were insider attacks that killed several Marine Raiders. One of them was during our deployment on June, let's see, or on August, uh, 10th, we had three of our, uh, three Raiders killed in a team that was next to us in an insider attack. And so, uh, I mean, we were hit in an insider attack two days later at our camp. A separate one? A separate one. Wow. Yeah. So these guys, uh, rest their souls, were hit with uh, uh, an Afghan policeman 
that was dressed as a policeman that was there for an insider attack. So they had a meeting with everyone, and then this guy infiltrated and got in because he had a uniform on. They thought he was friendly. He wasn't. He he got three guys. Um, and uh, when that happened, we were out on a mission. I was like, once we heard that they called those guys, you know, to be picked up over the over the radio that we listened to their, you know, the, to the radio comms and we could tell that there was, you know, three of them that got killed, killed in action. And, uh, it was the team leader, the team chief, Matt Manukian, Ryan Jeske and Sky Moat, the EOD, the bomb. And, uh, man, I took the wind out of our cells for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, these things, uh, two days later, you know, from that instance, there's people that go home for the funeral or there's things that happen that people need to go back with the bodies and, and that type of thing. Um, but uh, two days later, we got hit in an insider attack. And uh, thankfully, everybody from our team survived, but the Afghan Special Forces lost several of their their guys. And so for us, it was an Afghan Special Forces guy that initiated the attack that went up to one of our security towers that just started lighting us up with RPGs. And, uh, he basically turned the machine gun in on the camp. He turned, he had all of the, he had 12 plus RPGs that he let off on us. Um, you know, he had his M4 on him and he had his pistol. So basically he just turned everything inside on all of us and just started lighting us up. So, uh, and, uh, I talked through that, that full experience on the Sean Ryan show too, but you know, kind of, I was, I was out in the open. So I was sitting at a table, everybody else was asleep and I got hit, you know, <laughs> and knocked out and then had several RPGs come in everything. I'm, I was kind of out of it, but, uh, miracled my way into the operations center. And that's when, you know, everything's destroyed. We're watching everything in our camp is destroyed. We could see on the TVs that everything's like, we thought we were locked in with mortars. So we thought that there was an enemy position that had us locked in and they were dropping mortars on us one after another. So we thought we were done. We didn't, under, we, we thought that we were in really big trouble because we still had whatever, three or four months left on deployment. So we're thinking, wow, these guys are hitting us direct with mortars. How are we going to survive for three more months here? <laughs> and, wow. uh, and then we realized that one of the army guys came over the, uh, radio and said, Hey, the interpreters in here saying that one of the Afghans has gone crazy in the tower and needs to get killed. We we're like, wow, that's when we, that's when we knew it was an insider. Cause before that we get attacked every day from outside in the village every day. So your psychology in your mind, you're never going to think that the attack is coming from inside your security bubble that you depend on to be your security because everything outside is not. But it took us a little while to realize that it was coming from within, that it was an insider. That's the biggest part of the psychology of it because you're getting attacked every day from outside. It's hard for you to realize that this one's coming from inside. Mm -hmm. And so... um but thankfully, all of my teammates survived uh, that situation. That's what I'm most thankful for. Um, and then uh, moving on from there, 
Um, you know, it's uh, the big lesson from Afghanistan and going back to Iraq. And when I came in is like all these people said that you, you're not a real Marine or you don't get, you know, until you go to combat. You're not a real combat Marine until you go and deal with this stuff. And it was like, I always wanted to have an opportunity to test myself so that I wouldn't have to deal with that. Like, you know, oh, you're not worthy because you haven't done this. But once I was there, it was like, man, this is what you guys wish for. This is what you want. Like, this is horrifying, man. Like, now we're literally just here trying to keep each other alive the whole time. Like, like, and all this horrifying stuff is happening. And this is like this, you know, it's horrifying. There's people that are mentally snapping and breaking down because they can't deal with the stress of being there every day. And so this is what you said. This is what everybody's preaching about, that this is what we need to do. Be careful for what you wish for, because I was almost wishing that I would have a combat deployment because of all the bullshit with the culture. But I unwish all of that as soon as I'm there. Like, this is not anything to want to be in or whatever. It's just a thing to survive and make sure that everybody makes it home. And yeah, it was a it was a huge realization on that. It's such a crazy experience. And then once you fly out, like I remember getting on the helicopter when I flew out of my our, of the enemy village, me and my buddy Fees, we flew out. And once we're up in the air where we know we're not going to get hit with an RPG and we're, we're like safe, that was the weirdest part after being safe and now you're flying out is like, how do I process this experience? <laughs> this was insane, man. Mm. And then you come back and there's these, there's new guys coming onto the team. And now we're going to the, now we're going to the Philippines or the Pacific or whatever it is. Completely change the mission. We have all these new responsibilities. We got all these new team members. So it's kind of like that thing happened. And then now we got to focus on all this stuff. You know, we got all this work to do. We got all this stuff. So I think that it was just, you know, there wasn't, and everything also too is, uh, during that time, I wasn't emotional about any of it. I just had that sh turned off, you know? Mm. So it wasn't like I was like, how do I feel about this? I didn't feel about any of it. I was just like in a checklist, like, okay, what's next? What do we need to do next? Okay, what's next? Okay, what's next? And then, uh, you know, that worked up until uh, I started throwing my back out a lot. And I had... My, my disc is blown out at the bottom, like a lot of people are from carrying a pack and all that stuff. That's fine. But what I never got an MRI. So I was at uh, one of the SEER courses that I got to go to at the very, that was my last school that I went to was the advanced SEER course. So you go to SEER when you start your, you know, special operations training, you go to SEER school. And then later on, I went to the SEER school right before I got out. I, and in that experience, I blew my back out in the cage when you're in confinement. And so I couldn't stand up. I couldn't walk. And then once I got, once we graduated, they got me an MRI and then it showed that. And then when I got back, it just opened up Pandora's box for, Oh, well, and you got blown up. You got this in your ear. You have these other things. So they started like, you know, head to, uh, head to toe check. And then next thing I know, I'm on a medical separation board. Wow. And I was in the middle of a reenlistment. So I was thinking, I have three more years, three and a half more years till I figure out what I need to do in life. 
And then I can deal with this medical thing. I can deal with all this, but I'm still going to have time in here and I can work my Intel job. I can do other things where I don't have to be like an operator with the pack on all the time. And, uh, and that's what I was thinking. How can I make this work? And then one day the medical officer called me into the office and was like, Hey, you know, I found out that you're trying to work around me and do these other, you know, still go on this little deployment or do this or do this. And, uh, I'm going to tell you right now that you're trying to hold on to the door. And right now I'm ripping you the fuck off. You're out. So when you walk out of this room, you're done being an operator. You're not ever going to be an operator again. And you're going to be getting out of the Marine Corps in six months. So as soon as you walk out, you need to start thinking, what am I going to do outside of here? Because he's like, I'm not deploying you because when I deploy you, now you come back and the Marine Corps looks at you like you're fit for duty when you have all this shit wrong with you. So I'm not doing that to you either because that's going to disqualify you from all the uh, benefits that you deserve for your body being messed up. So, So that was like a huge wake up call. Wow. Now I have to get out. And now, you know, what am I going to do? Oh my gosh. And so the transition was the hardest part of the whole thing. And I never, ever expected that transition would be harder than combat. Transition would be harder than going to your first unit. Transition would be harder than anything than being with no rank for three years and being on restriction for however long and all that shit. Transition was harder And the reason why is because you go from being in that checklist or I went from being in that checklist, not emotion, all that stuff to getting out. And then now, um, starting to be like, well, how do I process this whole experience? Who am I? What's, what is this? And then when I went to certain healing or certain veteran retreat or this type of thing where they do, uh, therapy and they hypnotize you and they go in and try to find, you know, these bad data files or they try to find what's really bothering you from your combat experiences. And I would, I thought like, nah, man, I, I don't need that. My buddy that's homeless needs that. My buddy that's this, he needs that. I don't need that. I'm not here to work. work, Like I'm not the one. And it's like, no, you are the one you're here at this retreat. So you are going to do the thing. And, uh, I remember going through my first, like, you know, in the, with those different modalities of therapy that weren't, it wasn't the couch therapist. It was different. It was like deeper than that. And, uh, and having these things where, wow, I could see that, you know, these experiences really bothered me, you know, mm-hmm. this really bothered me. And then beyond that, it was all the childhood stuff because, uh, I never talked about that ever. And I buried it so deep within my conscious and everything that it, it was just down there, but it was always like felt like a volcano that was just buried, you know, and, it, but it's still going to erupt sometime, but it's just buried down. Mm. And so, uh, I think having those access to those therapies and those treatments is what opened me up. And really as it opened up Pandora's box, it, that's what created the, that's what made it so hard because I went from being on, when I got out, I'm on 15 or 10 to 15 meds. Right. And when I was on all those meds, it got to a point to where I remember my wife, I was sitting cause I'm a go getter. I do. I always have a lot of projects. I'm like, I'm always doing stuff. 
And so on meds, my wife would catch me in, like at 9 a.m. or something, and I'd be on the couch like, mm. and she's like, what's wrong with you? Hey, what's wrong with you? You know, I was like, and I remember it, it's like uh, in the military when people are sleeping in, during a military class, it's like, like that. And it's like, wake up. Hey, dude, are you weak? Wake up, right? And I remember thinking that as my wife would check me and she's like, hey, are you okay? What's wrong with you? It's like I was the guy in the class that's falling asleep. And they're like, dude, you're the only one? Like, why are you, you know? And so I, I was like, what is wrong with me? And I got to get off these meds, man. These meds are dumbing me way down to where I'm like a, a zombie. I'm not myself on these things. So then getting off all the meds, now, I'll, now I'm off those antidepressants. So now I felt when I had that, those depression, those waves mm -hmm. where you feel the low, you feel the high, you feel the low. And, uh, and that, you know, that was what in those waves I was thinking, why me? Why did I survive? Why did I get shot? Why did I survive the insider attack when my buddies didn't? Why did I, you know, why me? Why me? It's all a victim story that you're, that I was in. Why? Why me? Why me? Let it go. Why me? Why me? And one of my buddies um, that I was in combat with told me, hey, dude, you're having these thoughts. There's, do you think that anybody that's not here right now would be happier if you were hurt more than you are? You know, that was a big thing. And it's like, no, then I know that they wouldn't. I know in, in my heart that, that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, that was just the process that I went through. And I think a lot of people go through that now that I know more, but um, it's a healing process. And yeah. so. How did you work your way out of that process? Or, you know, what was your healing process like when you started discovering some of these things that were affecting you? Well, to be transparent, like when I got out, I went into business school and I started drinking again as a, as a, cause I have social anxiety. So to mask that social anxiety, I started drinking so that I could be around a group of people to, to cope. And so that was obviously it worked in, in the beginning, but then I, you know, drinking for, I think I drank for two years that it became very destructive. And so the drinking added to my depression, added to the why me, why me, the victim, all this kind of stuff. And it just spiraled out of control. And it got to a point where I was doing dangerous, dangerous uh, things and putting myself at risk. And uh, my, my wife was like, man, you can't do this anymore. Like, you're, you know, and we can't do this anymore. So what are you going to do? And at that time, I had been getting uh, invited to go to these uh, psychedelic assisted therapy retreats, you know, for months. And it was always some networking thing or this famous person's going to be there, all this stuff. And it's like, I don't care about anything like that. I don't want to go to any networking ever again, you know, leave me alone with all that. And I was finally like, uh, my buddy Miles, um, that was inviting me to all these things. He said, what's wrong, man? Like, why don't you accept any of this stuff? And I was like, I don't want to go like, I got serious problems. I don't want to go to a networking event to go do anything. And I don't want to meet any, I don't care about any of that. And uh, so he's like, well, what about a private one? Yes. 
That's what I want. Like a civilian one or a private one? Yes. Okay, cool. So let me connect you with that. So I got connected with that, right? To go do the toad venom. That's the 5-MeO DMT. Mm. And I knew that uh, that's what Mike Tyson had done. He had had a huge, uh, like, um, transformation off of that. Mm. And so growing up my whole life, knowing Mike Tyson from when he was a heavyweight champ, he went to prison, all this stuff. Now he's had this huge transformation off of this toad venom. That shit's got to do something for me. So I had a belief in it. I didn't, I was also scared of it. I don't know anything about it, but it got to a point where I was supposed to go to do it in three weeks. And my wife's like, you're not going to make it another weekend. Like you got to go do it this weekend. And so I got plugged in to go and I, I drove up and I was just out of my mind at that point. And, uh, and I went and had a very profound experience and, uh, came back, um, and basically, um, you know, in that experience, the best way I could say is that I just got to face a lot of my demons or the things that were bothering me. And like, you know, the, the peeping Tom, the, all these different things that it's like, yeah, you know, like what, what good does it do for me to have a resentment towards that peeping Tom at 39? Like I'm, I was still having, like, I didn't forgive that guy, you know? And where I, after the, the, that toad venom allowed me to reframe almost everything in my life to where it was like, oh no, that guy was like your trainer. He, that was special operations training that you were getting from seven to 10 years old. That's what set you up on the trajectory that you're on. So that guy's your homie. That guy's like, that's a win that that guy did that. Okay, cool. What, you know, what's next? What's next? Oh, well, all these grievances don't matter at all. And so all of my fractured, when I got out of the military, all my, all my relationships, a lot of them with my whole family on both sides were fractured in different ways where now they're all healed. I have, I just got back from a family reunion in Texas with my whole dad's side of the family two weeks ago, my whole mom's side of the family, they're all connected. We all do like, you know, so all of that has been part of the, the transition and the healing process that was like going from being completely like fractured and dysfunctional and broken and like not wanting any relationships to then rebuilding it all. Mm. When did you meet your wife? I met my wife, uh, on December 12th, 2015. So this is why you're in the, this is like a year, a year and a half before I got out. Okay. Yeah. I, I, and I asked that because you mentioned her a couple of times and, um, you know, I, I, in my opinion, I don't think military wives or veteran spouses get the recognition that they deserve. Um, how big of a role did she play for you in your healing process? Oh man, my wife, Brittany's the, been the biggest, uh, support system or arm of my whole healing process and just, um, keeping accountability right? Which sometimes is hard, but accountability is love. If someone's holding you accountable, they care about you. Um, as well as just, uh, you know, um, and also like I wasn't with my wife through a lot of my military career. I only met her at the end. So for her to come in at the end and not really be there or understand some of the stuff that happened before she really came in and just was such a strong, you know, 
person and uh, able to to work through that process. So um, I tell people now because I get to work with you know Marines and all different uh, branches getting out in transition that the, one of the best pieces of advice is to think of it like a security situation. You always want 360 degrees security around you. When you get out, you need that 360 degree security. It's just now it's your support system. It's your circle of trust. It's your mentors. It's your training partners. It's your people that give you advice. It's, it's your, your family, your, your closest friends and all that. And so I think also that there's an institutional, uh, institutionalizing aspect of it that happens when you get in the Marines or you get in the military. You're getting paid every two weeks. The government's paying you. You're in the military for years and years, for 10 years, for 15, for 20. That when you leave that, it's scary because you're like, how am I going to survive outside of this? Where's my check going to come from every two weeks? How am I going to have the resources? So you kind of get like, you don't, you know, you get uh, hooked to that and you don't want to leave. Like I call it Shawshank Redemption. You don't want to leave that walls. Whereas the people that are out, we've gone through that transition. We're like, you're free now. You're free. Mm -hmm. Come out. And they're like, no, I'm good here. It's like, no, man, let's go. Let's go. And so, uh, yeah, it's a process. It's it's, it's comfortable, you know, knowing that you're getting this check uh, like clockwork, you know, knowing that, you know, you you got this on-base housing or whatever you're living, whether you're a boot Marine or senior, you got the barracks or you got on-base housing or you're getting BAH for, you know, off-base housing. Um, you know, you got the chow hall at your disposal, (laughs) like, you know, it's just, it's like, it gets comfortable, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, man. Talk, um, I'd like to hear now uh, uh, about, um, you know, we'll start wrapping this up and stuff, but um, obviously I want, I'd like for you to talk about um, what you're doing now, you know, Underwater Tor- Torpedo League and Deep End Fitness and kind of how you got involved in that um, and, and, uh, and the impact you guys are making in the community. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Don and I were working at the pool together back like almost 15 years ago now, but um From that experience, we've been grateful to not only use that in our own training and to get through Raider training and all the stuff that we did, but um, that we were able to, even when we were in Raider training, we would take the guys that were in our course with us to to the public pool on the weekend and we would train them water confidence, you know, and that was our value to add to them. And then they would add value to us by helping us do whatever they were good at. You know, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was also a tool for us to give back and add value to other people immediately once we got to training. So we always did that. And then being in, uh, um, I was on the first Raider dive team um, once we started the dive program. So our dive team, we all, everyone got dive certified and got confident in the water by playing what we used to call underwater football, right? That's underwater torpedo league now. So that playing that game, what we saw is that when we could take someone's focus off of their own fear and their anxiety or whatever it is, and we put it on this other object, that that unlocks results. Or we put it on this game. Oh, now we're playing a game. So all the guys that wouldn't go down to 15 feet, once we started playing the game, they went right down. Mm-hmm. What changed? Their focus. From them being on themselves to now they're just in a game. 
So we've, we had all these aha moments over the last, you know, over those years and thinking, why doesn't this sport exist? And uh, I remember being in Iraq and Al-Assad at the air base the last week of deployment and seeing all these recon, Navy SEAL, all these teams that were there that played water polo against each other. And they had all the pictures of their team in the water polo teams. And I'm like, this is weak. Why do these guys play water polo when they should be playing underwater football or UTL? Why do they play water polo at Al-Assad Air Base? You know, mm-hmm. they should be playing something warrior, some warrior shit. This is not it. And, uh, but I always thought someone else is going to have to, someone, when, when is someone else going to bring that in? Not us. We didn't think we were going to be the ones. But then whenever we got out, Don and I got out at the same time, just miracle. So we started putting our heads together. What are we going to do? Well, we love training. Where can we have the most impact? When we take someone underwater, that's where we have the most impact. That's when we can change someone's life, have a transformation in 30 minutes versus taking someone to the gym. So that's how we created Deep in Fitness. And we created it with, we wanted it to be the feeder program and the training arm to get someone to be able to play UTL. So six years ago, we started our first season of Deep in Fitness and UTL with two pools in Southern California. And the test was to see if we can get two pools with insurance, max them out with participation and hold a championship. That was the first Aqua Bowl of UTL, the first championship that we ran six years ago. That was season one. Now we're in season 12. We have uh, 1.5 million followers online. Our videos go viral for UTL all the time and for Deep in Fitness. Um, we train all professional athletes for the last five years from all sports. We have contracts with pro teams here in Southern California and outside. Um, and we've really gotten like taken, been able to take our experience in the military and then get out and then start working with all these different other, uh, professional sports groups, human performance, AFSOC, Marines, all these different people where it's just, um, improved our understanding of what unlocks results and how to add value to people in the shortest amount of time. Wow. Wow. And you guys have been launching locations everywhere, huh? Yeah. Don's on the road. I'm on the road almost every week. Uh, we have um, 25 locations right now across the country that are active and that's for deep in fitness. So we're, we're expanding that business similar to CrossFit. So it's a licensing. And once we have an individual that's in an area, we have a pool there, all we have to do is train them and then plug them right in. And then that's, you know, gets that thing going. And then the communities are growing in each location. So our goal is to hit 35 locations by the end of this year. And that's pretty much everything that we're doing. So, um, a lot of that too, cause people have been, you know, we've been doing this for six years. So if there's anybody that is interested in joining deep in fitness, like we're always open. And we also, sometimes it's deceptive cause they see that we're doing these pro athletes or they see this, but really we built it for non-swimmers. So it's all skill levels can come and get gains from it. Um, and it's a no flex zone respect environment, you know, across the board. So we have sessions where we'll have an adaptive athlete. We have an adaptive session this weekend for challenged athletes in LA where there'll be professional athletes there with adaptive athletes or a new swimmer there with an Olympic swimmer. And everybody's there learning off of each other. Well, that, this, this new swimmer just swam for the first time today. Across the pool, they've never swam. It's a, you know, 35 year old man. What, what got you to do that? 
we really want to know, you know, so it's mm -hmm. a merit-based performance-based environment where we care about the effort that people put in and the performance that they have. Mm. And so it, it sounds like it's just not for veterans, correct? No. Mm. Yeah. It's a warrior class and it's veterans, it's civilians, it's water polo, free diver, crossfitters, hybrid athletes, uh, surfers, um, UFC fighters, all tits, just all different types. We got uh, uh, Padres, a major league baseball off-season program that we've ran for the last couple of years. Um, and that's, you know, they were, that was a new athlete for us when we started. We hadn't done any major league baseball, but they've been a great fit for the training. And so, um, wow. yeah, we just had a research study that got published last week about all the science and the benefits about deep in fitness. Nice. So all of that is quantitatively shown in what it does and reducing anxiety by 28%. Um, and also reinforcing positive coping methods. Um, for people that are interested, where could they find you guys? Find us at deepinfitness.com and, uh, or send me an email prime at utlnation.com prime at utlnation.com if you're interested in starting a deep end location being an instructor or joining the league or putting a team into the league we just had 12 teams in this last tournament so utl is continually continually uh adding teams and and tournaments so any any, any involvement you want to get involved in deep and fitness or utl shoot me an email or hit us up at deepinfitness.com or prime at utlnation.com. Right on. Um, we're going to wrap it up, brother. Um, any last words? The biggest thing that I see from military veterans specifically is uh, falling into the comparison trap where they're comparing themselves to others, um, which I've it always, and I've done it, and I is it's a trap. And so... I would challenge and recommend anybody not to compare themselves to others and to really honor whatever your story was. And I have examples like I know, uh, you know, Marine mechanic or Marine this or this or this. And it's like, you know, they, they told me something like, well, I tried to go to selection, but it didn't work out. And so, you know, I wasn't good enough or now I live in this story the rest of my life. And what I really want to drive home to anybody that's listening is that, if anything happened in the military where it's created this story that you live in, right? Like I didn't make selection or I got busted down all these times or I got in trouble or whatever it is, use that to catapult you into what you're going to do next. Just use it as ammo for what you're going to do next. But I would challenge you to not let it be a story that you, that carries on for the rest of your life. Use it as ammo to do what you're going to do next and then let that be the story. Awesome, man. Oh, it's been an honor uh, sitting with you, brother. So uh, thanks for taking the seat. Oh, yeah. Thank you, brother. Thanks Never for having bye. me. Yeah. yeah. I got bad thoughts that make my mind scared. Hold me hostage and they don't fight fair. Who gon' pray for me and wipe on my tears? Who gon' save me if you not right here? Move this darkness and make my sight clear. Take me your way because I don't like here. Ghost of my past, they feeling the night air. Wake me up. I'm trapped in my nightmares.